Welcome to A Hard Look, the Administrative Law Review podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Welcome back to A Hard Look. On this episode, we will be exploring the regulation of commercial spaceflight activity. Today, with the help of our guest, Karen Chenowork, we will review the evolution of commercial spaceflight and the regulations that have spawned from humanity's leap towards the new frontier. But before we dive into our topic for today, let me take a brief moment to introduce our guest. Karen is the Vice President for Regulatory and Government Affairs at Relativity Space. Prior to her time with Relativity, she worked at SpaceX as the Senior Counsel and Senior Director of Spaceflight Policy. She is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University teaching a course in commercial space law. Beyond her private employment, she has represented the Commercial Spaceflight Federation as a member of the U.S. delegation to the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Her educational background includes a JD from the University of Texas and an LLM from the University of Nottingham. As a disclaimer, the views of our guest are her own and are not a reflection of that of her employer, firm, organizations, clients, or other parties in which her opinions could be imputed. Karen, welcome to A Hard Look. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you for the warm welcome and for taking an interest in the trajectory of commercial spaceflight regulations. So flight has come a, a long way in, in history. If we go back to the early 1900s, Kitty Hawk seems like forever ago. And on, I think the interesting midpoint between then and now is that President Kennedy was standing before Congress asking for the development of a national spaceflight program. So. Thinking about regulations generally from beginning to, to where we are now, how have, has aviation and spaceflight regulation developed in sort of the same way or evolved? So not yet, or yeah, so they have not, at least not yet. Um, I attribute that largely to the small number of launches. We only see around 100 launches worldwide compared to the tens of millions of flights that happen every year. So do I... Um, want to see a day when we see millions of space launches and space flights and a regular economy flying back and forth between, say, Earth and Mars? Absolutely. Um, but we're so not there yet. We have a lot, we have a lot of work to do. Um, there are a couple of key differences between aviation and spaceflight regulations that really matter and worth noting up front in this conversation. Um, one, um, and the biggest one, is the difference in the level of accepted risk. Commercial aviation activities have evolved into being truly routine. We get on airplanes every day, we feel perfectly safe doing so, and we should. They're reliable and very low risk. They're also highly regulated to that point. Um, so passengers you know, expect a safe flight. Spaceflight is still accepted as being a very risky activity. Um, its regulations are focused on protecting the uninvolved public, not the participants in the activity. The second key difference is that there are no sovereign boundaries in space. So, you know, we think of the concept of controlled national airspace as applying to the flying public, to commercial activities, even military activities. That's not so in space. Once you cross over into space in Earth's orbit and beyond, there's no sovereignty. It's really interesting. It's, it's, it's really the great beyond of, of no control. And so when we think about past sort of the 60s and into the 70s, after we eclipsed the space race, uh, we get to the 1980s where Congress decided to take some actions to sort of regulate um, commercial launch activities generally. So in the 1980s, we get the Commercial Space Launch Act. Uh, 
What sorts of responsibilities did Congress confer to uh, the Department of Transportation, I guess, vicariously to the Federal Aviation Administration as a result of this legislation? Yeah, so this legislation, like many pieces of legislation, grew out of a problem. Um, a, a group of people were trying to launch a rocket from Texas, the Conestoga launch, and they found themselves having to go to a whole host of agencies um, to try and get a, a license to launch the vehicle. And it led to the idea that we want to foster this activity, we want a commercial activity. Um, so Congress decided to take action and they granted oversight of commercial expendable rocket launches and spaceports in 1984 to the Secretary of Transportation. Um, a few years later, Congress added an indemnification regime to limit liability from third-party claims. Um, and then in the 1990s, the FAA was given oversight of space vehicles re-entering um, orbit. So there was an evolution of capabilities grown out of the realization that we needed to provide a clear path for regulating rocket launch and to foster commercial space activities in the United States. Um, one notable thing, though, is that when they were given all of these authorities, and even as they, as they evolved um, into the 90s, uh, the FAA was not and still has not been given oversight of um, activities in orbit. Um, those activities, things that you think of like commu um, communication satellites or remote sensing satellites, those are governed by the FCC and NOAA within the Department of Commerce, um, respectively. Really interesting. So after we go through this sort of, um, uh, I guess, just regular sort of course of action after this legislation and its lifespan, Congress decides to come back and amend it in, in the CLS, CSLA in 2004. What sorts of changes did they make to the legislation as a result of the amendments? So again, action by the industry spurred action by Congress. So we had the X Prize flight, um, with, which was the first successful commercial human space flight in the United States. And so in 2004, Congress acted to grant FAA the authority to license human spaceflight, and they specifically designated those folks as human spaceflight participants. That term was very purposeful. Um, given the high risk, they wanted to distinguish them from passengers who constitute the flying public and face much less risk, as we were previously discussing. So while human spaceflight was added to FAA's authority, Congress did also decide to put a moratorium on their ability to impose regulations that would govern the design or operation of a space vehicle. So notably, only one flight occurred with people on board, and then they took action and they said, let's not over-regulate and squash the industry. Let's be really thoughtful about this. So then in 2015, with no significant commercial space flights occurring, Congress extended that moratorium that you had just mentioned and uh, also called the learning period on, on human spaceflight regulation, specifically the regulation of occupant safety. But now the times have changed and technology has evolved to a point where becoming an astronaut is most likely on the verge of becoming its own commercialized activity. The recent space race between Virgin Galactic, SpaceX and Blue Origin have really illustrated this possibility. What has been the role in the learning period in the recent space race? Are the company's activities regulated in a similar manner? So I want to start by emphasizing that these companies are highly regulated, right? So this is not the Wild West where they're conducting themselves without regulations. As we have already talked about, dating back to the 80s, there have been regulations governing aspects of their activities. Um, and so the learning period still exists and is still on occupant safety. Um, notably, we've only seen a couple of flights from these companies. So um, 
we can look at that and see that there's a burgeoning industry, but we have not yet see it materialize into passenger flights. So looking at the actual capabilities themselves, SpaceX built the Falcon and the Dragon to meet NASA crew requirements and provide commercial services for NASA astronaut delivery to the International Space Station. Thanks to the contracting terms, little shout out to the federal acquisition regulations there, SpaceX can also sell its services to non-U.S. government customers. They can fly private citizens to orbit as they did with the Inspiration4 mission. Virgin Galactic and Blue Origins human space flights, those are suborbital flights. Um, they don't reach Earth, Earth's orbit as that, for example, Inspiration4 or reaching the ISS requires. So while these are different vehicles, though, the human aspects in terms of the FAA regulations fall under the same rules. They fall under Part 460 of Title 14 of the CFR. Um, each of those instances, so each person that flies is required to um, engage in an informed consent regime, um, also kind of characterized as an acceptance of the risk, and they have to sign um, they have to sign cross waivers of liability, the text of which is actually dictated in the regulations itself. So like I said, it's really important to note that these are not unregulated activities. Even the human spaceflight aspects are regulated to some degree. They're just not regulated to say exactly what kind of seatbelt you need or what kind of um, attachment device or what kind of emergency abort system do you need. Um, that said, all of these companies are highly incentivized to conduct their activities as safely as possible. So even thinking too, because the sunset date is on the horizon for, for this, um, this recent moratorium, do you, do you think there's any chance that we might see an extension of that moratorium in the near future? I think there's a chance, but it's unclear to me exactly how this will turn out at this point. Um, there's still a limited number of entities engaging in this activity. Um, there are significant efforts underway to develop consensus industry standards for human spaceflight. Um, that's in accordance with congressional um, that's in accordance with congressional direction from the 2015 Act. So I think it's a possibility. Um, I do think there's a lot of thought and discussion going into what happens with human spaceflight. I also think it's interesting because it's such a high profile activity. Everybody's really excited. I personally would be thrilled to go to space. <laughs> it would be super cool. Uh, so similar to general aviation to kind of shift a little bit, uh, there are licensing requirements for commercial space launch activities. How does the, the licensing program for commercial space activity uh, operate? How does it uh, traditionally differ from aviation licensing? So the key difference is that um, risk profile. So uh, commercial space regulations are focused on protecting the uninvolved public. So that's those are the people uninvolved with the space operation. Um, that means that the folks, the folks launching the rocket in terms of the launch um, hardware, the satellites that are on board, if there are people flying, they're accepting the risk um, of that flight and they are not, not protected specifically by the regulations. But the people on the ground, the folks watching, the folks flying in aircraft, folks out at sea, um, all of those folks are the uninvolved public and they are protected. So to do that, the FAA looks at the flight safety processes. It looks at the hardware that's involved in protecting the public. Um, it looks at the um, company's ability to control the vehicle, looks at ground safety systems. There are requirements related to the communications and training of the people involved in the spaceflight activity, so the actual team staff of the companies. And then there are even regulations regarding the mishap investigations that occur if something goes wrong, so that you can understand how you bake that into the safety system going forward. 
So it's a significant aspect that's different than aviation. I'm not an aviation regulation expert, but the regulation of aviation, the regulation of aviation is much more piece part, much more detailed um, than what we have for space flight. So, and with the advent of increasing sophistication and technology coupled with deeper understandings of space has made this dream of entering space really come alive. Beyond the excitement of increasing human spaceflight, what other issues challenge the regulatory regime for commercial space activity? Yeah, so there are a couple of big ones. Um, one of them is that gap in who regulates what happens um, in orbit. So we've been able to close that with things like payload review. So the FAA reviews the payload and the payload activity, and that's an interagency review that engages with the State Department and the Department of Defense and NASA, depending on interests. So we've been able to conduct commercial activities in space, but it really would be nice, again, to have a more one-stop shop place that if you are wanting to put a, a habitat in orbit, for example, or if you're wanting to land something on Mars, that you could go to a government um, entity and know that that entity is going to give you a license um, and regulate that activity. That's been proposed at the Department of Commerce, um, and I, I'm hopeful that we'll see some traction on that in the next, uh, in the next congressional budget cycle. Um, space debris is also a top issue. So there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of um, focus on this, especially after the um, Russian ASAT test that occurred this year, really unfortunate. Um, that should be significantly condemned in terms of uh, sacrificing what happens in our in our orbits. And uh, one of the things that are talked about there are rules of the road. So do we develop rules of the road for increased NGSO? So it's the constellations that are occurring, operations. Um, those are those are two key two key issues, orbital debris and what, what else and who else is doing something in orbit that we're, and how are we overseeing it? So then we have this, the sort of regulatory picture we just illustrated, but what about from the perspective of commercial space entities in the current um, regulatory structure? What challenges lie ahead the next time that Congress or the FAA begins to regulate in this area for them? Yeah, so it, it goes to this question of, you know, am I going to get to go to the Department of Commerce and request a license? And what does that regulatory regime look like at the Department of Commerce? There's been a lot of advocacy around it being a light touch, a flexible approach. Again, wanting to foster um, space activities, wanting to grow a trillion dollar economy in the United States. And, you know, at the same time, you know, the government is on the hook through the outer space treaties, through various um, obligations to make sure that we oversee this activity and it's conducted in accordance with those treaty obligations. So you can see the, um, the treaty, then you see the statute, and then you see the regulations. And right now what we have is we have um, treaty, statute, and we could use some regulations that make clear um, what that licensing regime, again, advocating for flexible light touch, but I, I really want, you know, to be able to see uh, commercial habitats in orbit. I want to see sustainable exploration of Mars, human exploration of Mars. And I think the commercial role in that is going to be increasingly important, which means a, a appropriate level of regulation is going to be necessary. So companies have certainty around their investments, especially since this is such a venture backed um, activity. So in recent time, too, we have seen, uh, you know, there's a variety of actors that sort of all have a, a stake in the in the commercial space regulatory space. But the FCC recently um, initiated a rulemaking on a spectrum of launch vehicle uh, launch vehicles. Can you kind of walk us through what their rulemaking does and how it um, weaves into the existing fabric of commercial space launch activity? 
Yeah, so the FCC obviously has a huge role in commercial communication satellites activities, um, but their role in launch activity has been a little lesser known. Um, so anytime we launch a vehicle to space, we need to be able to communicate with that vehicle. It's key aspect of the safety of the vehicle. Um, and in the past, most launches that were occurring from the US were happening you know, by government entities. And so, um, and, they, and they continue to happen today, largely from government facilities. So that means that the FCC is our door for applying to use spectrum, but we're using actually government spectrum. So it's an interesting interplay with the NTIA, which is housed in the Department of Commerce and oversees use of government spectrum, despite the fact that we're commercial entities applying to the FCC. So that's a, that's a rulemaking that's underway and looking at how we open up um, and improve the licensing regime for commercial launch spectrum. Um, of course, the FCC is also looking at the NGSOs, constellations. There's regular news being made about the oversight um, of new constellation enterprises that are coming on and the growth of those constellations and thousands and thousands of satellites and the role of the FCC in orbital debris. I'll also note that the FCC is an interesting organization because it is an independent agency. So while there are whole of government activities occurring through like the White House National Space Council um, to address things like orbital debris, the FCC tends, can be can be an outlier in that process because it is independent. That's really interesting. So like taking this whole conversation that we've had today um, and thinking about it, one thematic thing that, that really runs through is the, the blurring between the government enterprise and then the commercial enterprise. Does this uh, gray area have any broader implications for the commercial space flight, uh, for commercial space flight activity? How does it tend to affect our thinking about space generally? Yeah, absolutely. So the more commercial um, activity we have in the United States, the more commercial capabilities are developed, the more the government can capitalize on those and focus its resources on the exquisite needs that the government has. So whether those are intelligence capabilities or whether those are exquisite science needs, like the James Webb telescope that's going up, so exciting. Um, so those are the things that the government can focus on and invest in and not have to invest in things that the commercial sector can provide in a more routine manner, like launch now, right? So launch used to be uh, you know, something the government conducted for itself. We now have launch capabilities being provided in a commercial-like manner to the government, firm fixed price services contracts. That's a big step improvement from where we were with the government having to pay cost plus contracts to develop um, launch capabilities. And then there's the possibility of, you know, the government piggybacking on. So where the government doesn't have to be the anchor tenant, but can take advantage of satellites that the commercial entities are putting into orbit, habitats that they could fly astronauts to to conduct science experiments on. All of these um, commercial enterprises all facilitate government, positive government outcomes. Um, you know, the company I'm at now, Relativity, you know, we're focused on additive manufacturing, 3D printing rockets. We're doing that in a commercial way. The government will definitively benefit from higher reliability, less costly um, vehicles that we produce because we invested in that in a commercial manner, not because the government invested in it and had to develop that technology themselves. Karen, thank you so much for this interesting and thoughtful discussion on this evolving subject. Do you have any parting comments for our listeners? I just want to encourage anybody who is thinking about administrative law to think about space law. Um, you know, there are two kind of underlying classes that I encourage my students to take. One is international law and one is administrative law because 
it, you know, space law at the end of the day is an administrative practice and it's a very enjoyable, very like growing industry. It's an exciting time to be in this industry. So um, take your administrative law classes seriously and then look at what that means to be able to be a space lawyer someday. Thank you so much. And as always, I wanna thank our guest for her substantial and important contributions to the discussion today the American Bar Association's Administrative Law Section, the Administrative Law Review, and of course, the podcast's own Cooper Bobbiter for their continued support, resources, and work on making this podcast a continued contributor to the important discussions happening in the world of administrative law. Thank you, and see you on the next edition of A Hard Look.